and welcome to the 2020 F1 Strategy Report, powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. My name's Michael Amanato, and this is Round 16, the Sakia Grand Prix. Things don't go wrong for Mercedes. They go catastrophically, unbelievably wrong. In a race that turned on a number of factors, none was more memorable than Mercedes' so-called safety pit stop, botched so badly that it turned a comfortable 1-2 lead into 8th and 9th at the flag. It robbed George Russell of a dream Mercedes debut, but handed Sergio Perez his own fairy tale result. The Racing Point driver inherited the lead after absolutely dominating the midfield to take his first win in 190 starts and in what could be the penultimate race of his career. How did he do it? Let's ask this week's guest, F1 journalist Phil Horton. Phil, how are you doing? Hi, Michael. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well, especially after a race like that. My goodness, what a result. You know, we're heading towards these, what one might call perhaps a little uncharitably dead rubber rounds. And this race really showed up that Formula One can still deliver at times like this. I mean, exactly. We all kind of went into it thinking, ah, these last three races, they're dead rubbers. There's there's nothing to play for. And we've had just... A, a bombardment of news events and then yesterday just an utterly spectacular race which looked to be heading in one direction which was astonishing and then went in another direction which was equally astonishing <laughs> but for different reasons good outcomes all around in other words it's uh, it was good for everybody well maybe not for everybody we'll get to mercedes in a moment but <laughs> let's start with the circuit itself because this track not only is it new to formula one it's pretty much completely new to motorsport really i mean it's always existed no one's just paid much attention to it it's never hosted a competitive race before it's the bahrain outer loop it's kind of like a rhombus configuration laps are less than a minute (laughs) and it's it was it was interesting because it was a sort of subtly different challenge all round to the more typical or traditional bahrain circuit wasn't it was sort of a faster version of it but uh, uh, force the teams and drivers into a little bit of a rethinking in the way they approach this race. Yeah, I think the best way I described it, I think it was a squoval, <laughs> whereby, you know, <laughs> just to counter the people who were getting angry with it being called an oval when it wasn't an oval. Um, yeah, obviously the first sector was largely the same. The last sector, or the last couple of corners were largely the same. But you then had that bit in the middle, which F1 used a bit of mm. once before in 2010 with the endurance layout, but never never just the outer layout so even though you had maybe i don't know a half to two thirds of the circuit the same you had a, a big focus on straight line speed for obvious reasons um a, a lot of focus on on braking and traction out of those slow corners but what it did is it forced teams into a slightly uh lower downforce setup which did affect how they took turn one the last corner it just left left them a bit more I guess susceptible under braking, just having to try different lines. I think you saw throughout the weekend, turn two and three, just with that little bit less downforce was much more of a challenge than it was last week with with a lot more cars just getting lighter, more spins during practice. So even though you had a lot of the circuit the same, it it was still a challenge for the drivers. I thought what was uh, an interesting facet in this circuit in particular, everyone, you know, it's been a big talking point for the last couple of weeks, the abrasiveness of the track. And look, asphalt abrasiveness, not that interesting on its own, is it? But (laughs) relative to the way the tyres overheat, the overheating tyres, which has been a perpetual factor of the Pirelli tyres, tends to limit races. We got a bit more of that degradation last weekend than we have in the last couple of years at this circuit. But the lack of the sort of technical stuff, that middle sector that was taken out and substituted for this faster thing, brought this race back into more of a, 
wear situation. We didn't see that kind of degradation we saw the first week. And I thought it was really interesting to compare the forecast strategies from last week to this week because on both occasions, I think they were a little bit conservative. But what Mercedes showed was that it was very possible. And in fact, the winner and the, the entire actual podium in the end showed that one stopping, which I guess is kind of like a Formula One default, isn't it, was actually very achievable if you just sort of gave it a bit of a go. Yeah, I suppose we've seen these um, strategy guidelines from Pirelli every race. And a, a lot of the time, they are conservative because my guess from historic evidence is that Pirelli don't like it when teams push the limit too much. So if they said, oh, this is the actual limit, teams would then try and push beyond, even further beyond the actual limit, if you see what I mean. Um, you're right in that removing the middle sector of the lap, it, it did affect tyre wear, it did affect how the race was run because you didn't have those high energy corners, you didn't have the sweep through what was turn five, six, seven, that that kind of awkward turn nine, ten complex, you didn't have the, the fast sweeping turn 11, 12. You only really had heavy braking zones, traction zones, and I guess you could call turn six kind of medium speed, that that bumpy corner. So I think teams went into it looking that a two-stop was likely, but that a one-stop, especially if you started on the mediums, as Mercedes did, um, a one-stop was eminently possible. The bumpiness was the final factor of this this configuration that made it a little bit more interesting, I guess, just because this part of the track is is not so well used. Maybe it caught a couple of people by surprise, but even that combined with the curbs turned part of this circuit into a little bit of a car eater, didn't we? And I mean, we're going to be comparing the Mercedes drivers a little bit in this podcast, naturally enough. Uh, Valtteri Bottas's Friday was kind of defined, not simply by the fact he was beaten by George Russell in both sessions, but... He had this compromised car because he, he suffered some damage and we did see damage play a decreasing amount through the races. Drivers came to, to grips with the curbs, but it did play a role in this race and drivers having to kind of drive within themselves, which is something that perhaps sounds a little bit counterintuitive when this lap is, is less than a minute. Seems like it should all just be flat out. Yeah, it did. I mean, when you have so few corners on a, on a racetrack, there's that tendency for the drivers just to push the limit a bit further because they know that you know, if you've got a circuit with 22 corners, you can maybe give or take at one or two. But if you've only got, I don't know, what are we playing with? Maybe five or six of note. They're thinking, oh, each corner, the importance of each corner is just magnified. So they're just pushing the limit too much at some of these corners. And I think from from the very start of FP1, I think it was his second push lap that, that Valtteri broke his floor, going too heavily over that that turn seven, eight curb, which which was a high curb, especially compared to the some of the others at the track. But he wasn't the only one that had that. I think uh, Norris, Stroll, I think in qualifying, Gasly went over the um, went over the curb. So when they're all trying to look for maybe not even a tenth of a second, but almost like a hundredth of a second, pushing for those small margins, it, it bit some drivers. Let's compare and contrast now, looking at the, the race, and really starting with Q2, of course, where the first stint ties are set for those who qualify in the top ten. We've... Despite this not being the same configuration, we did get this little bit of intrigue in the sense that, okay, the tyres were going to behave sort of similarly. It was going to be less aggressive for them, but similar kind of parameters, obviously similar weather. It doesn't 
often change that much in Bahrain, the weather being in the desert. It's very nice. Uh, <laughs> and obviously the asphalt's all more or less the same because the first and last sectors are the same. We're straying a bit into the hypothetical here, but we almost had this opportunity to re-prosecute last week's strategies. Last week, Red Bull Racing was close, but not really close enough, and maybe not aggressive enough as well, according to Max. But on this layout, Verstappen was closer on the Friday long runs, uh, very much so on the softs, and was very much closer in qualifying. He started on the softs, having used them in Q2 with what was clearly an aggressive mindset, whereas Mercedes was more or less going with what they learned from last week, what they knew which was starting on the mediums and playing it conservative. Of course, Verstappen was wiped out on the first lap, so he never got a, a chance to see how he was going to play out. He wasn't really wiped out. He crashed on his own, really, didn't he? Uh, this is, again, of course, deeply hypothetical, but was this a really golden opportunity at these back-to-back, very similar tracks to have built on that closeness of last week? Do you think from what we saw that he'd learnt enough, the team had learnt enough to put themselves in the fight here? Um, I think it was. I think you can look back at several races this year and see where they could have done better either through strategy because in, in the first Bahrain race, uh, Max thought they were way too conservative mm-hmm. effectively in, in not pushing for the win when second was pretty much guaranteed. Um, you're right, it is hypothetical. I think given that Max was on the soft tyre for the first stint and given his natural aggression, I think it's it's remiss to expect that he wouldn't have at least tried to hang on to Valtteri through that first stint. Whether in a normal race, so to speak, he would have been able to hang on and pass or undercut, I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, they had good pace, but then quite often we have seen Red Bull have had good pace on a Friday and then just been far enough away to be frustratingly close um, come race day. But it was definitely a shame Max got wiped out because you just know that he would have he probably would have been a factor in in some shape or form uh, further on through the race. There's a certain irony in the Mercedes conservatism, and I, let's say let's get Mercedes out of the way early here because while they played well the defining role in so much of this race, ultimately they were not the winners, didn't score major points here, but they were very comfortable in the lead, weren't they? And George Russell was very comfortable leading Valtteri Bottas. Perhaps not the greatest look for Valtteri Bottas in this race. They extended to a one-stop in that first stint. They were sort of actively doing it, realised it was achievable on those mediums and and swapped a little bit after half distance onto the hard tyres. Very conservative, very straightforward, had quite a sizable gap with Verstappen missing over the field. And then we had what can only be described as the ironically titled safety stop behind <laughs> the safety car. I mean, when things go wrong for Mercedes, they really do go wrong. There's, there was, of course, logic to them stopping behind the safety car, wasn't it? It made sense in the context, that safety element. But why did it? why did they get it so wrong when this is a team we're used to seeing execute things so well, including quite last-minute double stacks of the sort that undid them here. It is one of those aspects that they only seem to have uh, catastrophes. I, I guess when <laughs> when you're at the front of the grid all the time, at any time that you do mess up is going to be magnified because if you're mm. pretty much guaranteed a one-two finish, any mistake that does happen is not going to be a midfield mistake where someone might not notice, say, an Alpha Tauri going <laughs> eighth to twelfth. When you're at the front people are going to notice. Um, So through that race, George brilliantly took the lead from Valtteri. Then they ran off one, two. I think Valtteri got a little bit lucky uh, on the first lap, both to escape that drama at turn four and and not get kind of caught up with Max and Sergio and Charles 
uh, when they came together. Um, but then as the race wore on, you just thought, you know, God, could could George actually win this? You know, this is going to be a one stop. They gave Valtteri a few more laps on the medium tyre. So we had kind of a four lap tyre advantage for the second stint. And he was reeling George in a little bit on the hard tyre, but not enough that I think you thought, oh, this is game on. You know, you thought George is managing this and thinking he could actually win on his debut. This is extraordinary. And then you get to the pit stops, which, sorry, the, the safety car pit stop, which <laughs> ironically was caused by George's replacement, uh, Jack Aitken, not blaming him. These things happen. You know, you, you, you can't say that was his fault that Mercedes lost the win, but there is a certain misfortune that George's car kind of cost him the win. Um, because you had the front wing on track. So given the short nature of the lap time, race control really had no choice but to throw a safety car because um, it was just in the racing line. And there's so many cars on a short circuit that it would have been too risky for a marshal to try and dive out there. I think even under a virtual safety car, it was a bit risky. Um, so what happened is they called George into the pits. Um, the, the radio communication didn't work as expected. So effectively Valtteri's side of the garage heard the call brought out the tires George's side didn't until too late so George comes into the pits expecting his tires naturally to be fitted only the mechanics have Valtteri's tires fit those tires on you go then when Valtteri comes in having double stats you could see a couple of the mechanics going oh hang on a minute we've made a mistake here you know these tires <laughs> these tires do not say VB on them they say GR so they realize their mistake and in that kind of, it, it wasn't as bad as the the Hockenheim pit stop from last year when it was kind of full blown comedy. It was, I think, it was about twenty five seconds, not fifty five. But in that time, you can see them panicking and thinking, "Oh my god, what do we do now?" So, Paul Valtteri, tires go off. The same hard tires that he has been on for about fifteen laps go back on um, via a brake fire because of how long the car was stationary. So he goes out, loses position. And of course, because you can't run, well, the regulations in this are a little on the sketchy side, but effectively you cannot run someone else's tyres, realise, and then still run them. So George has to come in again, change onto the mediums that he was originally meant to be on. But that puts him down to fifth place um, behind the the racing points and Ocon and behind Bottas, who is now on tyres that are harder and older than he expected. Okay, this obviously cost them a big shot at the one to finish. Cost them the one to finish flat out. Ultimately, cost them the win, but only because George Russell later picked up a puncture while trying to pass through all those cars to recover first place. He was second when he got that puncture, dropped him well out of the points, only recovered to score a couple. I feel like I part of me, like I'm pleased he scored some points and got something out of that at the end, but part of me kind of hoped he didn't so that he might still get his first points with a victory if Lewis <laughs> Hamilton can't return next weekend. Feels sort of sad somehow for him to just wind up just in the points. Doesn't seem somehow deserved. He deserved more than that. But I think there's if there's one second moment where perhaps this race was lost, it was that decision. And you mentioned it there uh, for Mercedes to put those same hard tyres back on Valtteri Bottas. Obviously, two of his tyres had already gone. They were on George Russell's car. Yeah. They didn't have a choice for those. But... Those hard tyres cost him right at the end, because whereas he could have been running in fourth after uh, Russell's puncture, he plummeted down the order, didn't he? Because those tyres, the way he was using them after the restart, really started to expire for him. Would it have been a better use of time, notwithstanding it would have 
taken more time for the mechanics to run back into the garage? Do you think for him to have been swapped to another set of tyres he did have available rather than just be sent out, take the time for a pit stop, but actually get no material benefit for that time in pit lane? It probably would have done. But the flip side is we can blame the tyres. And, you know, Valtteri was desperately unlucky in that race. But equally, there's guys that finished one, two, three in ostensibly slower cars who are also on Mm. similarly worn tyres. So given that kind of situation, you probably would have expected Valtteri, you know, maybe not to win the race, but at least probably put up more of a fight than he did. Because once he was in that position, it kind of looked like, I don't want to say he'd lost fight, but he just went backwards. You, You think in that position, it's like, okay, he was fourth, then fifth, which would have been fourth when George had the puncture. So there was still a chance of a podium. You know, he was dealing with um, a, a Renault on hard tyres and a racing point on mediums. Now, given everything that happened, you probably would have expected him to put up more of a fight to close them down, to at least try, whereas he just went backwards. That There was kind of... There just seemed to be no effort in that. It was very bizarre. Um, could Mercedes have called him in again? I guess with hindsight they might have done, but I would have expected at that stage they probably thought if they've got split strategies, there was almost nothing to lose. Um, it's just a poor race all round on, on that side of the garage completely, in, both in terms of tyre wear and the driver himself it was, it was very poor well i think like you say when it goes wrong it really does go wrong for mercedes so they finished well down the points pretty scant reward for being one two so early in the race but you mentioned there and now let's look at those podium getters essentially all one-stop runners sergio perez technically a two-stop but he made his first stop on lap one that left him at the back of the pack that's you know, as big a disadvantage as you can get, really, in motor racing. That's normally how it goes. Let's talk about Perez on his own just for a second, because while the one stop was what got him into that position to inherit the lead once Mercedes had capitulated, Perez was sort of just on another level, wasn't he? Because he was running fundamentally the same strategy as Esteban Ocon behind him and very similar strategy to his teammate Lance Stroll in third. But at no point, and I was reflecting on this today, did you get the sense that he was even in the same race as them? We know Perez is really good with his tyres. Is that all there is to him extracting that pace we saw on Sunday? Um, no, we we know he's good on tyres, but he is fundamentally a very quick racing driver. You know, you've seen the teammates he's been up against, who he's beaten, who he's matched. He is a, I don't want to say underrated because I think everyone does rate him, you know, he's <laughs> He's fourth in a championship. He has the third fastest car. You know, this the fact it's such a shock win is kind of the fact that it just hasn't aligned before. You know, it's it, it was a magnificent drive. Um, and I remember, I think it was about halfway through the race, or it might have even been before, I, I tweeted something like, you know, Perez can finish on the podium here because his pace was so strong. He'd, he'd come through the back markers so quickly, so cleanly, that you really thought... There's kind of no way he's not going to be in podium contention. And and there were things that worked in his favour because, you know, firstly, that first lap clash, I think, number one, there was no damage to the, uh, to the car because, you know, he, he gets rear suspension damage when he gets hit, he's out. 
Um, the fact the way he spun meant that he didn't get hit by anyone following. He didn't end up beached in the gravel, so he could re- rejoin at the back of the pack and continue on his way. Uh, then the fact we had the safety car meant he effectively got a free stop, so he could get rid of the soft tyres that all of the others in the top 10, aside from um, the Mercedes, were still on. So that was a strategic advantage. And then also the fact that in that incident, you know, you had two front runners, Charles, probably less so, but Max, you know, we've already talked about, definitely in contention. You've, you've suddenly removed one key rival and, you know, it just opens the race up. So he got massively unlucky in being hit on the first lap. But equally, there were things that worked in his favour. So even from the restart, he was in contention, even though before the restart, when warming his tyres, he locked up, got a flat spot. So even though he was on the back foot, he still managed to just fly forward through the back end of the field. It was something like seven places in four or five laps at that start at the beginning of his recovery. Uh, there's a certain amount of irony in saying some of that win belongs, in a sense, to Charles Leclerc for putting him <laughs> yeah. in a position to ditch those soft tyres. You would never have picked it at the time, but that allowed him to move quite seamlessly onto this one stop that ended up being very competitive for him. Rose to third before and after the, let's say, his real one stop, his stop in the middle of the race. Uh, and that was the perfect position, of course, to capitalise on Mercedes. Uh, I thought it was really interesting, though, Lance Stroll, sometimes a little bit underrated. He was fundamentally undercut by Esteban Ocon. Uh, Ocon did emerge behind him, but having stopped earlier, had warmer, hard tyres, allowed him to get past Stroll. But Stroll's first stint here was, in a sense, underrated, I think, because this was a really long stint on soft tyres kind of echoing the way Carlos Sainz managed to do an unusually long stint on softs last weekend when no one else thought it was possible. Got to lap 42, which was approaching twice as long as they were meant to go. Is this maybe those sort of hints at maybe he's learning something from Perez in tyre management? Is it something about the the way that car handles the tyres? Because that was his own, in a race in which no one else starting on the softs managed to find that kind of performance, that was really the foundation of his podium. Yeah, there was definitely that. It, it's again one of those races for Lance, a bit like Monza, where he's on the podium, but you also think, oh God, he, he really <laughs> could have won that with a bit bit more things falling in his favour. It's one of those weird ones. Um, but definitely you had that train of cars where I think it was, I think it was Sainz, Ricardo, Kvyat, I think Gasly was in there, um, Stroll and Ocon. Now you're you're thinking, oh, they're they're probably going to two stop. So I think it's Kvyat pits first. Um, Ricardo and Sainz think, oh, we've got to respond to that. But Racing Point keeps Stroll out. So the longer he goes on those soft tires, while still maintaining pretty good pace, the the more it goes on, you're thinking, God, he he can one stop. So when he got to that point where he could one stop, all of a sudden he's in contention for the podium, and he's he's jumped those drivers that that were ahead who who ran the two-stop, then pitted under the virtual safety car um, when Latifi had the oil leak. But by that time, the guys that had already committed to the two-stop, you know, they knew they, they couldn't get from lap 27 all the way to lap 87 on one set of tyres, so they knew they'd have to stop again. So as soon as that virtual safety car happened and they came in, that pushed Stroll back up the order, and, and from there on, he could just coax that set of tyres to the finish. There's also something, it's, it's something we thought was going to play perhaps a, a larger role in this race. In the end, it was fairly well managed by everybody. The idea that the short lap would mean taking a pit stop potentially could be calamitous in terms of time because you're essentially losing half a lap yeah. with a pit stop. 
Uh, if you then fall off the lead lap, you're in blue flag territory and they tend to compound, don't they? Because you've got to slow down to let faster cars pass. That slows you down over the course of your entire stint. can really ruin a race. There seemed to be a sense that for Ocon and Stroll, perhaps deciding between one and two stop, the decision maker was that they were waiting for Mercedes or hoping Mercedes would stop so they weren't at such a great risk of falling off that lead lap. So I don't know how much necessarily you want to describe this as... It would be unfair to say that this is an accidental stroke of genius because it was, it was all <laughs> you know intentional in the end, but they were sort of pushed in that direction incidentally, perhaps. And sometimes that's how you do find these great strategies is just by seeing how far you can push it rather than being predetermined. Yeah, you're right. I mean, most racing circuits, you have a lap time. What's what's the next minimum? It's probably Austria, where it's about a minute four yeah. for a pole lap, whereas here you're 53 seconds. So yeah, if you take a pit stop with a delta time of kind of 25, 26 seconds, you're, you're going to lose nearly half a lap. Um, and if you've got two Mercedes flying out front, they are going to lap you if you make a pit stop. Um, so I think that definitely played a part in probably pushing it a bit further than they may have liked. But I think also one advantage that, you know, a season-long weakness of Esteban Ocon's, which has been his qualifying pace, um, he's never beaten Daniel Ricciardo in a dry session this year. So that that year-long weakness kind of inadvertently helped him because it meant he had that free choice of tyre for the start of the race. So rather than go on the softs that the others were on, i.e. committing to a two-stop, he could start on mediums and then try and do the one-stop, which, you know, that's what got him the podium. Maybe if he was faster on a Saturday, um, he wouldn't have finished on the podium. So so for once, a weakness might have actually turned out uh, to be a benefit. Yeah, it's a beautiful uh, irony there, an accidental way to move forward, and it worked for him, I suppose. One of those races where we do see that starting outside the top 10 with that free tie choice you know, tight midfield can sometimes be, uh, you know, perhaps a disproportionate advantage or disadvantage, depending on which side of the fence you fall. Let's talk briefly here about the, uh, what I want to call the alternative podium getters here. Carlos Sainz, Daniel Ricciardo and Daniel Kvyat, they were the ones competing for what was third place when the Mercedes was still running early in the race. You mentioned there they got caught in an undercut trap triggered by Daniel Kvyat, which meant essentially they were locked onto two stops. And that put them out of ultimately podium contention. Uh, I want to talk about Ricardo in particular here, though, because there are a couple of. I mean, he was quite disappointed, wasn't he, for, to, to not score better for Renault in this his second last race for the team. And there was one moment I want to pull out in particular. These tend to cost big in the midfield. That Renault misjudged its call to to cover Daniel Kvyat on that undercut. They lost a position to Daniel Kvyat because, and maybe this goes to the shortness of the track. They just didn't talk to him quickly enough. They didn't call him in fast enough to get him into pit lane to change tyres. It cost him a position at the time. Ultimately, that might have cost him a chance to attack Sainz. And Sainz didn't finish that far behind Stroll. A massive knock-on effect for a relatively small, by seconds, error. Yeah. I mean, I think with the way the race turned out, with the whole one-stop guys getting on the podium, I think a podium for Daniel would have been difficult, but they definitely did lose out. Um, because they kept him out for two laps longer. So usually if someone comes in, you think react next lap, but they kept him out for two laps. So by that time, you've got the data, which surely would have shown that you're going to get undercut. So you think, well, if you've already lost the position, why not push it? Because if maybe he couldn't have pushed it, but maybe if he could have done, you know, that might have pushed it towards more of a one stop or even getting fresher tyres late on. 
so that was that was one aspect and then later on when the virtual safety car did come out we we touched a bit on this but it it was a short virtual safety car period but by the time i think science and ricardo had committed to making that second stop you know it's logical you're going to lose less time but by the time they had done that you'd already got the the call that the virtual safety car period was coming to an end so actually at that point there's very little benefit in still diving into the pits so I think they still had the potential to abort that call, run a bit longer and then maybe get fresher tyres at the end. So it was just one of those days where it felt like any call that they did make was just wrong. You know, they got one car on the podium with Esteban and that's great. But I think with Daniel, he just, I think he said it post-race, you know, <laughs> they were running ahead of Sergio Perez and Perez went on and won the race. And when that happens, that that's never a good day. So their strategy just it just didn't work they they weren't reactive enough and it, it just felt like one of those races where it just slipped away from them i think a fair summary there couldn't get science so science finished fourth daniel ricardo fifth daniel kvyat probably could have finished sixth but was passed late by alex albon now he's had all sorts of troubles over the course of his season we know there's a lot of speculation over his seat but i do want to point out uh, i mean over the course of this year occasionally he's also and often this is because he's not put himself in a great competitive position to begin with, but has been the recipient of the odd unusual strategy call. In this case, he ran a long opening stint on the medium tyre, which was more or less uh, one of the strategies we could have expected, switched over to the hard tyre, and then later in the race behind the safety car, switched to the soft, lost a fair few positions, four positions as a result of that, only recovered back to sixth by virtue of the Mercedes cars essentially dropping well down the points. I can understand why you'd want to go for the soft tyre lace in a in a race when some of the other drivers, your rival drivers, are on older tyres. But, I mean, for a driver who doesn't seem very comfortable in the car, is it the the right way to go about it, do you think, to sort of throw him these curveballs when maybe he just needs a to just sort of put his head down for a longer amount of time to try and see what he can extract from the car. It's really difficult because we've we've seen many times this year that Alex just hasn't been on the same page as Max in qualifying. Sometimes it doesn't cost him. You know, if he's three or four tenths down on Max Mm. at some circuits, that's one or two positions. So he's he's kind of in the ballpark. But here, three or four tenths of a second was the difference between Max being fastest in Q2 and Alex being 12th. And when you're 12th on the grid, especially in a car that probably doesn't have the best top speed, we heard it early on that he said he was just struggling to race. He just kind of gets trapped in this cycle of not being able to defend and not being able to attack. So it just magnifies how bad it looks for him. Um, I really don't know if any strategy would have worked. It's, it's, It's kind of difficult to know. You, you kind of think, well, why why couldn't they have made the one-stop work if he started one spot behind Ocon? Ocon finishes second, Alex is sixth. So how come that worked for one and not for the other? I just I just feel like, I don't know if this is an Albon thing or a second Red Bull thing, because we've seen this for a couple of years. It just, it just never goes right on that side of the garage. And I, I, I don't know what the fix is. It just, you feel like every time Albon gets something, just go his way. It, it all comes crashing back down again. It's a bit like after Mugello where he got the podium. Then the next few races, he just has a disaster. So, you know, how, how do they fix that problem? It, it's just, it, it's baffling. It is. It's a, it's a confusing situation and I, for him, obviously, for the team concerning. I think it's going to be really interesting 
I mean, next season, who knows who's going to be in that car. It does feel like the team is leaning towards retaining him. Obviously, they're really trying to give him an opportunity to argue for himself that he should be retained. But I think you touched on it there. There's, it feels increasingly like there's a question mark about that second car in general. That's not necessarily anyone in the team or that side of the garage in terms of personnel. But I do wonder whether we're seeing this extreme version of a team leader that that really gravitates the team towards him, in in this case being Max Verstappen, to the point where there's just no oxygen at all left for a second garage. And there are very few drivers I can really think of off the top of my head who are like who have been like that. Maybe you can argue, you know, Michael Schumacher was famously or infamously a number one, but that was really defined, wasn't it? Whereas it's not defined here. Alex Elbon is meant to be competitive, but just can't do it in the same way Gasly did. No, no, you're exactly right. It's hard to know what the answer is. And I wonder whether the team knows. Yeah, I mean, we've had this thing for a long time now. This is not just a dip. This has been the case since the start of 2019 and that the second Red Bull driver hasn't been on the same page as Max. And and you you probably wouldn't expect that because we know how quick Max is. You know, you know what he can do with a racing car. But for, for two years, Red Bull have not been able to make their second driver comfortable. And we've seen how much promise Alex showed in the Toro Rosso at the start of last year. You know, he showed flashes of pace. He showed flashes of ability. And we've seen how good Gasly's been since he rejoined Toro Rosso, now Alpha Tauri. So at what point do you look at the human side and say, well, look how strong Pierre's been at Alpha Tauri. Look how much Alex is struggling at Red Bull. You know, how much of it's the car? How much of it's the psychology? How much of it's how the, the team is working? It's just, it's this big puzzle that until Red Bull solve it, they are never going to win the championship. You know, they are not going to win a title when they have a second driver who is struggling so much, irrespective of who is in that car. You know, it's easy to blame the driver when for ages you've just had a second car that has not been competitive. You know, Lewis Hamilton could have won the Constructors title mm. by himself this year. That That's how off the pace the second Red Bull has been so I just they've got to fix it because until they do they're just giving Mercedes not a free pass but they're only ever going to be fighting with one car up against two in in a two drivers in a faster car and when that happens nine times out of ten they are not going to win it's a real quandary for Red Bull racing we'll wait and see whether or not they can solve it and just as a final footnote Lando Norris an incredible first lap rising from second last on the grid but then got caught in what we feared was going to play more of a role in this race and that was essentially the DRS train where you do kind of get stuck in that midfield and had varying effects for that mid those that midfield lot of drivers meant he couldn't rise much further than 10th place. Uh, One point for him in that battle for third in the Constructors for McLaren. Really interesting race, the Sakir Grand Prix. Uh, That tweak in the format really sort of made a little bit of a point of difference, and I'm glad if we have to race somewhere twice that we do change things up a a little bit in this very strange year. And Phil, real pleasure to talk about this uh, memorable Grand Prix with you. Thanks very much, Michael. That was F1 journalist Phil Horton. The Strategy Report is powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. Play it for free on iOS and Android devices. If you want more Strategy Report, you can get every episode by subscribing on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on your favourite podcast app, plus all of your social media channels. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a rating and a review to help other F1 fans find the show. 
The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you next week for a review of the season finale, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix.